Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions by learning the stories of their heroic brothers and sisters in the past. Now, today we're beginning a new uh, part of this Two Journeys podcast, the Journeys from the Past podcast, that we call Heroes of the Faith. Now, we've already given an overview of 2,000 years of church history and the previous Journeys from the Past podcasts. But now we're going to double back and, and look at some specific individuals, men and women, heroes of the faith. Now, before we really dig into this, I want to say a word on heroes. Uh, recently, I fulfilled a dream of mine when I visited Westminster Abbey in London. Uh, it is the equivalent of Britain's National Hall of Fame, where many of their nation's greatest heroes are buried or honored. My time was limited, and as awesome as the medieval architecture was, I was there primarily to gaze at the stone memorials which packed each side of the walkway. Most of the people that are honored there were unfamiliar to me, never heard of their names, and I wrote down some of those names for future study. But some of the names honored there were among the greatest names in history. Isaac Newton, the man who invented physics, calculus, and optics. George Frederick Handel, composer of The Messiah, Geoffrey Chaucer, author of The Canterbury Tales. I made my way over to the part of Westminster Abbey called Poet's Corner, and as I stood there, I looked upward at the stone statue of William Shakespeare. Now, the statue shows his left index finger pointing to a scroll, and on the scroll are written these words, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve, and like the baseless fabric of a vision, leave not a wreck behind." Now those are fitting words for the overwhelming experience I was having in Westminster Abbey of looking at the best honors that the living can give to the dead, these crowded memorials in an old stone church Shakespeare's lines are basically echoes of the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Everything we see in this present age will someday dissolve and be entirely forgotten. I was pressed for time while I was there in Westminster Abbey. I walked by most of the memorials with barely a glance. When I stopped and studied the tombs, I was struck by the brevity of life and the scarcity of resources to properly honor heroes and their achievements. Only 3,300 people are buried there, and only 450 of those have memorials in the Abbey itself. The space is so limited, each memorial seems to elbow out the other for attention. And though a million people a year ordinarily pass through Westminster Abbey, the majority of Great Britain's population never go there at all, and they don't read the brief stone inscriptions that are there. This is the best that man can do to honor its heroes, and it is woefully inadequate. For the heroic members of the family of God, heaven holds the solution. The world honors its heroes in metal and stone because the heroes themselves are dead 
They're gone. And those hard materials best withstand the ravages of time. But in heaven, such memorials will not be needed, for the heroes themselves will actually be there. And the whole history of their glorious achievements will be perfectly revealed in heaven by Almighty God. Now, we have to zero in on the difference between honoring heroes and worshiping God. One of the constant flaws of the sinful human condition is to make too much of human ability and too little of God's power. It may seem counterintuitive, perhaps even sinful, to imagine that any human being would be the focus of adulation or any kind of attention at all in heaven. When God sits on his throne before his people, allowing them to view his glory with unveiled faces, why would we for an instant turn away and gaze on a creature formed from the dust of the earth or marshal our praise for a mere sinner redeemed from hell by the grace of God. Yet in heaven, God will honor all who serve Christ. John 12, 26 says that. My Father will honor the ones who serve me. And if they receive honor from God, they also will receive honor from other saints. Paul said to the Philippians of Epaphroditus, honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, 29-30. But this appropriate earthly honor will pale in comparison with the holy honor that God will give to his servants in heaven. Now, God knows the difference between honor and worship, and so will we. They are related. Both involve evaluation of something to which in our hearts we are attracted or repulsed. We're drawn to individuals, we're drawn to someone, and we're able to evaluate them. Now, in worship, our souls evaluate the being and works of God as He has revealed them to us. And in response, we give God the highest place as Creator, Redeemer, Ruler of all things. As Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. We must not make the grave mistake made twice by John, who fell down to worship a glorious creature, the angel who delivered the visions that became the book of Revelation. The angel rebuked John at that time, saying, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Revelation 22.9 So, when God reveals the mighty words and deeds of His people from redemptive history in heaven, we will not fall down and worship those men and women. We will realize that every honorable act they performed was through the prompting and the power of God through the Holy Spirit. The specially esteemed servants of God will know this as well. Privileged to sit on thrones of honor in heaven, they will continually fall from their thrones and cast their crowns of honor before God's throne, giving Him all the glory. But the honor that they will bear in heaven will be great and just and right, for God will bestow it on them. And we will study the details of their robes and crowns and jewels so that we may honor them appropriately. But even more, so that we may learn more about God through their honorable lives and worship them all the more for the way they glorified Him. Now, all that will be in heaven. We're going to do that, I believe, in heaven. What about now? What about now? 
What should we do with heroes and heroines of church history now? Well, the book of Hebrews gives us a good answer. It has the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 and mentions people by name and some of the great things that they did by faith. At the end of that, in Hebrews 12, it says we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, but we should focus on Christ and zero in on Christ and run our race with endurance. But then in the next chapter, in Hebrews 13, verse 7 and 8, it says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Listen to this. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I think that is a good answer on what we should do with the heroes and heroines of church history. We should consider what God did in and through them and then imitate their faith. Now, we're going to have our own stories to tell. We're going to have our own unique good works to do. But we can be inspired by our brothers and sisters who went before us and be strengthened in our study of their lives. Now, today in this first Heroes of the Faith, we're going to zero in on an ancient hero, a man named Polycarp from the second century. And we're going to learn about his martyrdom and hopefully be inspired by it. Now let's talk about the context of Polycarp. And the context, as we talked about in our first Journeys from the Past podcast, was the spiritual conquest of the Roman Empire. Jesus stood before a Roman procurator, a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and he was being charged with threatening Caesar. We have no king but Caesar, etc. And he had to face all of that. Before he did that, though, Jesus taught about the principle of yeast. Matthew 13, 33, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed or hid in a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. That gives a picture of secret advance and permeation moving throughout the worlds. And the first phase of that in our study in church history was the spiritual conquest of the Roman Empire as it moved from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and then little by little further west to Greece and then eventually to Rome and beyond. Uh, there was an amazing secret permeation at the grassroots level of individuals within the Roman Empire to the ultimate culmination uh, in the early part of the 4th century in 325 when the emperor, almost emperor, a man about to become emperor, Constantine, declared himself to be a Christian. Now, another key factor in Jesus' teaching was the principle of self-sacrifice. Jesus said in John 12, 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Jesus was speaking first and foremost of his own death on the cross, which was about to happen. But he was also giving a general principle by which his followers would themselves advance the kingdom. And it was by dying to self as witnesses, as courageous, bold witnesses, and some of them giving the extreme sacrifice of the cost of their own lives as martyrs. And by the blood of martyrs, Tertullian said, seed for the church was scattered. As people watched the martyrs die, they, some of them were one to faith in Christ. And so little by little, through that secret, invisible permeation of the kingdom of God, the Roman Empire eventually was permeated and conquered by the message of the gospel. Now, Rome, throughout those first few centuries, became increasingly hostile to Christianity. Rome was zealous for its own glory, of course, had no commitment to Christianity or Judaism or any religion ultimately, but was zealous for the glory of Rome. Caesar Augustus said, I found Rome a city of brick and turned it into a city of marble. 
And that was his desire, the glory, the greater glory of Rome. And so all of these emperors came along and sought to advance the glory of Rome. And they followed certain principles and patterns by which they governed the Roman Empire, what's known as the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. It was also just a generally wise, enlightened policy toward conquered nations. This is how it worked. You come in with unbeatable military prowess. The legions were extremely difficult to defeat. Occasionally they would lose a battle. But Rome was very persistent and had a lot of resources and they were great fighters and highly organized. And you're just going to lose. Generally you just lost right up front or you didn't even fight. And so the Roman legions would conquer a territory and then the government would settle in and make life under the Roman domination as tolerable as possible. They allowed local leaders to continue to lead. They had puppet kings set up under the Roman emperors. They allowed people to have their own religions as long as they didn't interfere with the general operation of the state. And so in this way, people were just quiet and willing to accept Roman rule and willing to accept paying taxes uh, to Rome. They also wanted allegiance, ultimate allegiance to Caesar. And so little by little, they started to require people, Christians, to swear allegiance to Caesar and to swear that Caesar is Lord and to burn incense to Caesar as a form of patriotism, we could say, or allegiance to the Roman Empire. Now, these things were things Christians could not do. As a result, there started to be increasing hostility toward Christians. Beyond that also, Christians were just different. They didn't fit in. They rejected paganism. They did not accept the gods and goddesses. And we can't, uh, I think, uh, overstate how big the pagan religion was in everyday life before every meal, the temples, hospitals, uh, the schools. They were infused with gods and goddesses and paganism. And Christians just little by little had to just pull out of general society. Uh, it was a difficult time for Christians and they were increasingly hated, the population hated. So in the martyrdom of Polycarp, we're going to see that the real driving force for his martyrdom came mostly from the people, not so much from the rulers. The people just generally hated the Christians. Jesus said, the reason the world hates me is I testify that what it does is evil. And so however friendly and loving and kind the Christians were, they were essentially testifying that paganism was evil, sexual immorality was evil, the way that the people were living their lives was evil, and that if they didn't repent, they would be condemned uh, to hell eternally. And so this was obviously, for those that would not repent, a very unpopular uh, message. And so we come to the story of Polycarp. And let's talk about Polycarp's specific context. The emperor during the last stage of Polycarp's life was a man named Antoninus Pius. The word pious means he was very dedicated to his pagan religion. Uh, he was dedicated to the gods and goddess, uh, goddesses. Uh, he ruled as emperor of Rome from the year 137 to the year 161. Uh, there is evidence that Antoninus Pius actually sought to protect the reputation of Christians. This is debated, but it seems that he wrote an edict to the governors of the cities of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, testifying to the innocence of Christians protecting them from blame for various calamities that were occurring in the empire at the time. The, the argument went this way, that Christians, who were increasingly numerous, would not worship or sacrifice to the gods and goddesses. So then the gods and goddesses would bring afflictions and famines and natural disasters on the empire, and Christians were blamed for that. Well, Antoninus Pius sought to protect Christian uh, reputation from that. In any case, however, Christianity was an illegal religion. Uh, 
and the pagans living in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and the provincial governors there were easily enraged at them. Now, the events of Polycarp's martyrdom occurred in the year 155, and that was a context much more of local hostility to Christianity than a empire-wide policy that happened later under, under later emperors. Now, who was this man Polycarp? Based on his own statement in the testimony, 86 years have I served Christ, and do the math, he was born in Smyrna in the year 69, A.D. 69, within a generation of Jesus. Um, Smyrna, the city of Smyrna, which is where the martyrdom occurred, is modern-day Izmir in Turkey, along the western coastline of Turkey near the Aegean Sea. Uh, it was near Patmos, where the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. Smyrna was one of the seven churches that the elder, elder John, the elderly John, wrote to in his book of Revelation that Jesus had messages to the seven churches. And Smyrna was the persecuted church. As you remember in Revelation 2, 8 through 11, Jesus said this, to the angel of the church at Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. That's what Jesus said to the church at Smyrna. Now, one commentator noted that Smyrna is related, even verbally or linguistically it seems, to the valuable spice of myrrh, a primary export of Smyrna. There seems to be a relationship between Smyrna and myrrh. Myrrh was used as a principal ingredient for the anointing oil of the priests in the Old Testament. It was also given as a gift to Jesus at his birth by the Magi, and then it was offered to him when he was hanging on the cross. It comes in the form of aromatic resinous balls, which when crushed, give off a beautiful fragrance. So the church at Smyrna, like myrrh itself, was crushed by persecution and therefore gave off a beautiful fragrance for the Lord. These are good things to keep in mind as we think about the account of Polycarp's death in that very same city. Polycarp was a personal friend to the Apostle John. He knew him personally and was probably in the year 155 the last person living on earth who had personally known the Apostles. It's quite possible. Uh, Polycarp was also a friend to another martyr named Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch, who died for the faith in the year 117. Polycarp was a bishop or overseer of the church at Smyrna, and he wrote an epistle to the church at Philippi. And in that epistle, uh, epistle one of the things he asked about is what happened to Ignatius. Um, so that short epistle he wrote as part of his uh, ministry, and it's not unique in its theology, it's not creative, it's not a high literary device, but it shows an earnest commitment to apostolic doctrine and to the Christian life. That's who Polycarp was. As I said, his martyrdom occurred in the year 155 when he was 86 years old. Now, let's get into the actual account of his martyrdom the actual account of what happened. Most of what we know about the events surrounding Polycarp's death in the year 155 comes from an anonymous document entitled The Martyrdom of Polycarp. It, generated, it was generated, it seems, from eyewitness accounts because of the details. 
The triggering event in Polycarp's martyrdom was that a group of Christians was arrested in Smyrna and brought before the authorities in the view of an assembly of the citizens in a stadium. All of these uh, Christians refused to bow down and worship the pagan gods, and the onlooking crowd became increasingly enraged at the Christians as a result. Now, one of those Christians at that first phase uh, was a man named Germanicus, an elderly, elderly Christian, who said he did not desire to live any longer in a world in which such, such injustices could occur. This made the crowd very angry, and they shouted a slogan that they used a lot when it came to Christians, away with the atheists, away with the atheists, meaning Christians, because they didn't believe in the visible gods and goddesses of the empire. Away with the atheists, they shouted. Then they demanded, bring in Polycarp. He was the known leader, the bishop of the church at Smyrna. Now, when the old bishop found out that he was being sought, he followed the counsel of many church members and hid for several days. But after he moved to a different hiding place, his hiding place was discovered. He decided that his arrest and trial was the will of God and he calmly awaited his captors to come and arrest him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 19 and 20, when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. I think that's good to keep in mind as we read the account of Polycarp's statements, because they're quite amazing. When Polycarp's arresters, captors, came to the house where he was staying, he at this point, as I said, was ready to be uh, taken in by them. He greeted them with a very cheerful demeanor. He talked lovingly to him, though he were, they were his enemies. They marveled at his advanced age. They marveled at the seriousness and dignity of his bearing. And before he would leave the house, he invited them to share a meal with him. And then he asked for time to pray for an hour uninterrupted, and they gave it to him. And when they heard him pray, many of his captors truly repented from arresting such a dignified man. They actually wanted to set him free. Well, he was taken in a carriage uh, along with the chief of police, a man named Herod, who along with another man rode with him and begged him as they were riding to the stadium simply to say, Caesar is Lord. Just say it and just burn the, the incense and, and preserve your life. It's not a big deal. At first he would not answer them, but then he told them plainly, I will not do what you advise me to do. At that point they turned and became angry at him and began to yell at him and insult him. And when they reached the stadium, they shoved him so violently out of the carriage that he wounded his shin, lacerated it. Well, the stadium was in a frenzied uproar by this point, similar to the riot. Picture the riot in Acts 19 where they're shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Um, the account says, and this is interesting, the account is in, it's an interesting account. There's supernatural aspects to it. It's hard to know how much is true history. We'll find out in heaven. But the account says that as he was getting out of the carriage and going into the stadium, he and a number of the Christians around him heard a voice from heaven speak these words, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. He was brought before the proconsul who asked, if he were Polycarp, he said he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to deny Christ. said, have regard for your age. And said other things like, swear by the genius of Caesar, you know, basically worship Caesar, and repent and say, away with the atheists. 
Polycarp looked calmly and with great dignity at the angry crowd in the stadium and gestured at them with his hands sweeping across them and said, away with the atheists. It's actually one of my favorite moments in this whole account. The true atheists are those who do not believe in the true God who created the ends of the earth, but believe in gods and goddesses that don't really exist. At any rate, the proconsul continued to press him, saying, swear by Caesar and I will release you. And he said, revile Christ. Polycarp said, this is the most famous line in the account, for 86 years I have been serving him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? When the proconsul continued to persist, Polycarp offered to teach him more accurately the doctrine of Christ. Name a time and a place and I'll be there, he said. The proconsul gestured to the people and said, persuade them. Polycarp said he did not consider them the proper persons before whom he should be making his defense. They're like a bunch of rabid wild animals. I, I, I think about what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. So he was discerning in that regard. The proconsul was becoming angry and impatient. He threatened, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them unless you repent. Polycarp said, call them. For repentance from better to worse is a change we cannot make. The proconsul said, well then, if you think little of the beasts, I'll cause you to be consumed by fire unless you repent. Polycarp said, you threaten a fire that burns for a little while and then is quenched. For you know nothing of the fire of future judgment and the eternal punishment that is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you want. The proconsul cried aloud to the mob, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. They responded with rage and cries for his death. Finally, the proconsul commanded that this elderly man be tied to the pyre and burned alive. As the pyre was being arranged, they were going to nail him to the stake to keep him from running out. He asked them not to and said, Leave me like this, for the same one who has given me so far strength to face the fire will give me the strength to remain in it. As he was dying, he cried out, Father, of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs, I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. And with that, he died. Lessons from his life. First of all, the commitment to apostolic truth. He knew John. He was faithful to what he learned from John. And you can see the relay race that we've had from the eyewitnesses that heard Jesus and knew the things he did to the next generation that knew those eyewitnesses and on. It's been a relay race of biblical truth since then. And the eyewitness accounts were written in the New Testament for us and we rely on it. So that simple faith in apostolic doctrine, I think, is what I learned from Polycarp. And also love for enemies. Uh, his willingness to sit down and have a meal. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. His willingness to pray for them and to love them and to rely on the Holy Spirit for what to say and not be anxious ahead of time, but that the Spirit would give him courage and the ability to speak. And his evangelistic heart, the fact that he offered to the proconsul a chance to learn more accurately about true Christianity. He was willing to do this. And then a phrase that's often struck me, and that is dying well. A willingness to die well to die clearly believing in Jesus and believing in the next world, a world of glory. So you may not be called on to die as a martyr, 
But if the Lord doesn't return in our lifetime, you will be called on to die. The question is, will you die well? Will your family that stands around you watching how you pass into the next world see a man or a woman who firmly believes in eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ? So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in His hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from His will. He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. He has numbered the very hairs of your head, and all the days ordained for you were written in His book before one of them came to be. And He has gone ahead of you to prepare a specific set of good works for you to walk in, good works that are essential to His eternal kingdom. So just as your brothers and sisters in Christ lived for His glory in their day, do the same in yours, by the power of His Spirit, for the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.